Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to some of the best audio stories from around the world. Drawing on some of the 660,000 podcasts out there and share my picks with you. Coming up today, David Tennant does a podcast with his mate and now Oscar winner, Olivia Coleman. Then old recordings of a famous boxer accused in one of America's most divisive murder cases. If anybody put their hands on me in anger, I don't care who it is. My father, the preacher, or the police. I don't give a who it is. If you put your hand on me in anger, I'm... (laughs) You know? And that's exactly what I did. After that, a serial con man leaves a trail of broken lives in Who the Hell is Hamish? And finally, with Lime e-scooters currently off the streets in two New Zealand cities over safety concerns, we share an e-scooter investigation from the US. When people want to study sharks, they throw chum into the water. So I was just sort of chumming with scooters, and then people would show up, chargers, and I'd start conversations with them. And next time you hear something good, please do let me know. The email address is pods at rnz.co.nz. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. He's probably best known for playing Doctor Who or for his role as a dishevelled detective in Broadchurch. Now the Scottish actor David Tennant's got his own podcast too. His first guest is his mate, fellow Broadchurch star and now Oscar winner Olivia Coleman, And she's bracingly forthright, funny and potty-mouthed about her path into acting, the challenges of fame and how she copes with life in the 24-7 goldfish bowl she has to live in, enabled by smartphones and social media. Sounding and feeling very much like eavesdropping on a chat between friends, It's full of lovely revelations too, like how she once ate a cigarette butt in an audition, how she can do a mean Scottish accent, and how she played a great trick on Emma Stone in The Favourite involving a damp sponge. Come on in, Alfred. Come on, Alfred. So you sit there. Oh, you get the cushion. Uh, Do you want the cushion? I don't think I want the cushion. I don't want it. Rude. Well, I didn't ask for a cushion. There's a nice furry carpet. You can sit down here. Come on. Mm. Do you want to sit on my jumper? He prefers to sit on my jumper. Does he? I mean, I understand that. Look at this. I've got notes about you. Have you? I might know stuff you didn't know I knew. I might know stuff that isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would be the case. Yeah. 
Do we wear headphones? You can wear headphones, <laughs> yeah. Do it. It's quite. I like it when you hey. wear headphones because you sound better. It's lovely to see you. And you. What made you decide to do this? I don't know, midlife crisis? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm honoured. How could I do this without you? Oh. Do we sound okay? Yeah? Can you speak? Yes. Alfred, speak. Alfred. Oh, woof. Oh, woof. He can't. He no. won't. Unless someone knocks on the door. If you knock on the door, he'll bark. <laughs> Don't do that. Let's do that. Should we do that later? Yeah, later. Yeah. Let's not scare It can scare be our them. alarm at the end. Scare the poor thing. Can I, don't get up yet, Alf. I want to get a sweetener from my bed. Oh, yeah. It's right there. You've already got them. Oh, look at that. So organised. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little old lady moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, they happen quite a lot now. Do they? Yeah. Mm. Do you get them, old lady I, I like that you're using a biro to stir your tea. Well, it's not a spoon, is it? I don't think the Queen does that, love. <laughs> I bet she does. <laughs> David Tennant does a podcast with Olivia Coleman. Hello, Olivia. Hi, David. Thanks for being here today. Oh, my God, it's such a pleasure. With your dog, Alfred, on your lap. Alfred Lord Waggison. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see him. He's he very says, quiet. He's very quiet. He's whispering. He says it's nice to see you. David. I don't think anyone's going to believe he's here unless he makes some noise. He's very well can do a doggy bagpipe. It just looks like you're doing the Heimlich manoeuvre on your dog. <laughs> Sometimes it goes... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Collie, yeah. as we call you, sorry, uh, listeners, it is, it's it's quite difficult, and I've been trying, to find anyone to say anything nasty about you. You're very loved, aren't you? <laughs> it's true, though. You're very, you seem very well-adjusted, very unpretentious, <laughs> very normal, which is not... It's very like you, though, DT, No, isn't it? no, it you're is. a much nicer person than I am. I similarly, similarly, have never met anyone who said, oh, what a... Oh, I'll give you a couple of names. Have you? I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to meet them. <laughs> but you do, that's not the normal way for actors. Do you feel more well-adjusted than most actors? I don't know any arseholes, though, do you? No, no, I don't mean arseholes. I mean, uh, you have a sort of groundedness to you and a normality to you, which a lot of actors don't oh. share. Do you think that's fair? I mean, maybe you do you feel like you can't say that because no, that would be immodest. Like, yeah. yeah. But thank you very much. Well, an unpretentiousness then. But but I know, I mean, all my actor mates are like that, I think. Mm. You, Jodie, yeah. Andy, everybody. Yeah. Um, if there is an arsehole, I suppose they're more interesting, aren't they? So that's why people talk about them. But and actually, indulge them a bit. Yeah. Mm. And uh, Have you ever felt the need to explore your dark side so that people take you terribly seriously? <laughs> what and it behave like an arsehole well sometimes does it feel to you sometimes that when you're on a set and you think oh the people who misbehave get everything don't they you get treated oh, so well but they also get talked about and I they don't do, want that yeah. mm. I don't, you can see people going f***ing hell yeah and I thought, I'd, I'd hate it if someone did that oh me too I couldn't oh my bear God. it no and if I do get cross on set, you're the same as me. If we do yeah. get a little bit irritated about something, Mortified. then my day's ruined. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> if, I, if I have a slightly short word with anyone, I can't yeah. really, I can't recover. <laughs> God, yes. There have been moments like that, haven't there? I can picture you just embarrassed and... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, full day. Well, it's, it, it just goes against everything I feel. Yeah. Well, there's too many of us, aren't there? But what does make you grumpy? Subservience makes me really grumpy. Oh, yes. Do you know when someone that? is... <laughs> people are trained to be a bit kowtowy to actors. Oh, I see what you mean. And that me off. When you get treated sort of... Oh, 
And you go, please don't. I, I just find it humiliating. Don't yes. do it. And they just keep doing it. And people call you Ms. Coleman. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know if they do that very often. <laughs> um, but the sort of opening doors for you and right. walking with you everywhere, walking with you. And that's, I'm, see, I'm sounding like an arsehole. No, you're not, because it's 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 a testament to your unpretentious. The trouble is, of course, you now have quite a lot. You now have more status than you probably feel entirely comfortable <laughs> with, I would suggest, on a set. But you, you know that. On a film I do know exactly what you mean. So if a, you know, if a spark needs a pee, yeah. the, the world doesn't have to know and he doesn't need anyone to hold his hand. <laughs> People don't have to on the radio go. Go, yeah, it's gone turn one. Gone turn one. Gone turn two. <laughs> 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 um, and I go, please, please don't let everyone know that I'm going for a piss. And could, the trouble is the world does slightly grind to a halt if you leave the set, doesn't it? But I always check. I always check with the first. Yeah. Is, how long is this turnaround? Have I got nice time? You're a nice person. You're a proper nice person. Also, just trying to avoid the need for the entire <laughs> set to hear on their earphones. Talking about your water Livia's works. gone for a piss. Mm, I find that difficult. Quite useful to let the sound department know to turn your microphone off, though, surely. No, it's quite funny when... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And what oh, that about was an Alfred noise. There he was. He made a little grumble. See, he is here. Yeah. And uh, what about Offset? What makes you grumpy? Oh, loads. Does it? Yes. Oh, now I've got to think of something now. Yeah. People who drive in the middle lane of a three-lane motorway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. You know. It's effectively turning a three-lane road into a two-lane road, isn't oh, well, it? Well, yeah. This is your Wrong. driving background coming out. <laughs> yeah. Do people know you were a rally driver? Is that um, something you talk about? Um, I talk about it whenever I'm having to drive on set. Yes, you do, I know. <laughs> and I get a lot of people helping me to reverse. All right, love, let me show you how this car yeah, works. left hand down, left hand down. <laughs> I'll be all right, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Some of David Tennant does a podcast with Olivia Coleman, a something else and no mystery production. Thanks to Steve Ackerman and James Deacon for their help sharing that with you. And thanks also to James Halford, who emailed me at pods at rnz.co.nz to recommend that show. And since that interview with Olivia Coleman, David Tennant's also spoken to Whoopi Goldberg, Sir Ian McKellen, Jodie Whittaker and John Hamm. Here comes the story of That's how I first heard about the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, Bob Dylan's song protesting the innocence of the boxer who was imprisoned for 18 years for murder before finally getting cleared and freed. There's also a Hollywood film called The Hurricane starring Denzel Washington. So early in the morning of Friday, June the 17th, 1966, two African-American men walked into the Lafayette Bar and Grill in Patterson, New Jersey, and shot four white people, killing three of them. Reuben Carter and his friend John Artis were picked up by police shortly afterwards, then convicted of the killings. But throughout all his years in jail, Carter insisted he was innocent and had been framed by a corrupt and racist police force. Carter himself died back in 2014. But in the Hurricane tapes, sports reporter Steve Crossman and producer Joel Hammer share a treasure trove of 40 hours of old, previously unheard interviews of him speaking about the case. 
This old, scratchy audio and interviews with just about everyone involved, police, the victims' families and Carter's contemporaries, tell the twisting, compelling story of the case and of the sometimes less than heroic hurricane. I'll speak to Steve in just a moment about how he managed to get hold of all these old tapes, but first, here's some of episode one, The Making of Reuben Carter. At the age of 11, Reuben claims to have stabbed a man. He said he was just protecting a friend from a paedophile. So I have to mention two things here. First, criminal records, which I've seen, suggest he was 14, not 11, and that he actually assaulted this man with a bottle. And I don't know if that's nitpicking or not, but it's an indication that everything Reuben says in these tapes, we shouldn't read as gospel. But regardless of the weapon that was used, the authorities were not sympathetic to his claims of heroically defending a friend. They sent him to a remote place where the metal arch over the gate still says State Home for Boys. But there was nothing homely about it. It was, and still is today, a juvenile prison built just after the Civil War, known as Jamesburg. When I went to Jamesburg at 11 years old, my father came to see me once. And he said, I'm not coming back here anymore. He said, I'm not coming back here anymore. And he never came back there again. Reuben was alone in a scene from Lord of the Flies. He later said it was a place where eight-year-old kids became the prey of 15-year-old killers and rapists and boys for whom crime had become the only way of life. There weren't many guards. The boys ruled their own blocks. The top dogs were called line sergeants. And the line sergeants were usually the two toughest guys and they had complete rule of the prisoners. Uh, If they want to beat somebody up, they beat them up. Because that's how they rule. And I always wanted to be a line sergeant. And he became one. He mastered his environment. Even the most vicious children deferred to him. He said that at the end of every day, he was just thankful he was still alive and hadn't had to kill someone for the privilege. In the end, he escaped. He ran 100 kilometres in just two days. But he wanted to put more distance between himself and Jamesburg. In 1954, at the age of 17, he joined the army. For the young man at the peak of his physical energy, athletics, in one form or another, is a major interest. The army sports programs are unprecedented in size and scope. Every athletic endeavor imaginable is covered under the special services... Here, Reuben Carter's story brightens a little bit. And as with a lot of good stories, it starts with a few too many drinks. Reuben was posted to Germany... Walking back to the barracks one boozy night, he stumbled upon a gym where army boxers were working out. Drunkenly, Reuben bragged to the officer in charge that he could beat any guy there. The officer laughed in his face. Come back in 24 hours, he said, when you've sobered up. The army gives a man the opportunity to develop athletic skills through competition. The successful army athlete may go on to international competitions. So he did. According to Carter... The next day, he stepped into the ring with a real tough guy, the all-army champion, and Reuben flattened him. It was at that moment, with the army's best boxer lying at his feet, that he finally had a significant moment of self-realisation. After searching in strife for so many years, he finally knew what he'd been created for. Boxing. 
But for Ruben, knowing yourself and escaping your past, they were two different things. Well, when he got out of the army, I was living at his mom's house. So he and I stayed together. His cousin, Johnny. We'd run the streets, you know, chase girls, drink, the whole nine yards. He didn't have a job. Eventually, he got caught ciphering gas to put in my car while I was asleep. He knew my car could start without a key. To make a long story short, the police woke me up and asked me where my car was. And I said, across the street. They said, no, we have it. When I got down to the police station, I got a chance to look at Ruben, and he says to me, I stole your car. This was minor compared to what was to come. He later robbed an old lady at knife point and was sentenced to four years in prison. And there, behind bars, Reuben Carter's army epiphany began to take form. He started boxing more and more. He soon built up such a name for himself. He was able to secure an agent while he was still in prison. His first professional fight came the day after he got out. It was 1961, he was 24, and the boxing world quickly took notice. He was extraordinarily strong as a fighter. I mean, you just look at his body and it looks like, you know, an anatomy chart with muscles on top of muscles. I mean, he was an amazing physical specimen. Boxing writer Mike Silver saw several of his fights. Reuben Carter was like this dark villain you would see in a horror movie. And he played up that image in the publicity for Reuben Carter. It was played up that he was an, a former convict and the promoters wanted that mentioned. Prison must have really maybe turned him into an animal or something. I mean, he had the persona of a guy that was angry. This angry guy was becoming a local celebrity and that just swelled Ruben's ego and it began to draw people to him. A professional boxer needs an entourage and Ron Lipton became part of it. He was an amateur fighter brave enough to spar with Ruben. He still remembers their first meeting. He had a green iridescent suit, which was in vogue at the time, and a skinny iridescent tie. You know, it was unbelievable. This spectacular-looking figure, and he had, a, you know, the drooping Mandarin mustache, and he had a black derby on. And I said, look at this guy. This is so, He's so cool. So he walked over, and he says, I understand you want to meet me. And I said, uh, yeah, you looking for another white boy to beat up? And he stared at me, and, like, he was glowering at me for a second, and then he busted up laughing. And I, I liked them right away. <laughs> Not that Today, Ron teaches a boxing class at a college a couple of hours' drive north of New York. We sat in on one of his lectures as he strolls back and forth across the gym. He is in incredible shape, not just for a man of his age, for any man. He's got a white goatee and a black beanie pulled over his head. He's kind of intimidating, straddling a chair, studying me with his arms folded. But his luminous yellow jumper says more about his character. It's as bright as any suit Carter could possibly have owned. And on the back is Ruben's face. All right, time. This is what I want you to do. Remember I showed you that chop shot that Hurricane Carter uses? What's it like to take a punch from him then when you started sparring with this guy? It just was like being paralyzed. Some guys would knock you cold. 
Rubin like would paralyze you with a punch. And if you hit with it solid, if you don't twist your head or move, uh, it was like your jaw being driven through the back of your skull. Uh, it was all like half seconds, half inches. And if he zigged when you should have zagged, he'd knock your brains out. Former New Jersey cop Fred Hogan also stepped into the ring with Ruben. When I was sparring with him, I learned rather rapidly that boxing was something that I did not want to do with any regularity. So I, I admired him as a fan. I admired the training to bring him to that level where you could have all of that, the fury, the, the intensity, the talent, the ability. And yet when he hit somebody, he'd walk away because he knew they weren't getting up. When you actually watch him in the ring, uh, did he earn that nickname, Hurricane? What, what was it about the idea of a hurricane which mirrors Ruben's style? Well, he was animalistic in the ring because of the fury that he would bring on you. His movements were overwhelming and very graceful. He brought on fury. He brought on a hurricane. Steve Crossman's a BBC sports reporter and the presenter of the Hurricane Tapes. When I came up with this idea, which was something like August 2017, I wanted to make like a one-hour radio documentary and it was going to be the 50th anniversary of Reuben Carter's first conviction in 1967. And the idea was we would talk about all the stuff he did after he got out of prison, which has never really been covered in great depth before. You know, stories like how he managed to have a wrongfully convicted man freed when Reuben was on his deathbed. He wrote this letter to the district attorney saying, my dying wish is that this man who's been imprisoned for over 30 years for a murder that he didn't commit be freed. And after Reuben died, this man, David McCallum, eventually was freed. But the existence of the tapes, we only found out about when we were in New York speaking to a good friend of, of this guy, David McCallum, the man that Reuben freed. And he's an author. His name's Ken Klonsky. And he wrote a book with Reuben Carter. It's called Eye of the Hurricane. And he recorded a load of tapes when he made the book. But two key pieces of information about that. One, the information from the tapes that went into the book is all on this one topic, really, of... Ruben's psychological journey in prison. So there's a lot of stuff in there about, you know, he feels like he kind of almost learned to see through walls and how he thinks in some ways he's quite similar to the Dalai Lama. It's so spiritual. And I'm not saying that's not interesting at all. But to me, as a journalist, there were reams and reams and hours and hours of material, which is far more interesting, which is specifically about the case. So many new pieces of information are revealed through these tapes. And Ken said to us, oh, yeah, so I recorded these tapes with Ruben and I think they're with a university in Boston. And we found this university. I say found, it wasn't very difficult. We looked them up on Google. Um, <laughs> and we called them and they said, we haven't got these tapes. We've never heard of them. And it took a long time, but we managed to track them back from the university to the person who was supposed to send them on but didn't, who was another one of Ruben's friends. And I spent quite a long time talking to him. Um, and he said he, he didn't have these tapes. He had no idea what had happened to them. And eventually he called me maybe like a month later and said, oh, listen, I've been cleaning out my basement and I don't believe it, but I found these Reuben Carter tapes and he sent them on to us. And, you know, we had to get all 40 hours transcribed, which was no small task for whoever had to do it. Wow. Um, and yeah, but the first time we listened to them, you know, we just knew. And, and as soon as as soon as we listened to them, we thought, well, we can't just make an hour documentary about this story. We've got to go out and make a podcast. When they laughed at me, the only sound they hear in reply 
would be the sound of my fist whistling through the air. I would attack anybody that laughed at me. Anybody, anywhere. It didn't make any difference. What did it feel like when you got that phone call to say, yeah, I've, I found the tapes, I didn't send them anywhere? It was like winning the podcast lottery. Um, <laughs> well, it was weird because it was almost a sense of nerves because once we knew they existed, it was a good 10 days before we could actually hear them. And in that 10 days, it was almost difficult to sleep because you're thinking, this could be amazing. And it's funny, you know, we, we sent them all off to be transcribed, so we didn't listen to much of them before they were sent away by us to a, to a company that did the transcribing for us. But we listened to the first 10 minutes of one tape and we were quite worried at first because the first five minutes were just the Bob Dylan song Hurricane played and then repeated three times over. Yeah. So we got to about 20 minutes into the tape and all we'd done is heard the Bob Dylan song three times. So that was a concern. But then suddenly this voice came through, cutting through the darkness in this kind of beautiful, old school, you know, just good enough quality to hear voice. And, you know, I think the beauty of them is you're hearing Ruben in his own words. You know, it's not like he's doing an interview. He's just talking to his mate. And how much more candid are you when you're talking to a friend than when you're talking to a journalist? If anybody put their hands on me in anger, I don't care who it is. My father, the preacher, or the police. I don't give who it is. If you put your hand on me in anger, I'm... <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah, it kind of captures those unguarded moments, doesn't it? He, he, you really feel like you're getting the full account. And, it, and it's that warts and all thing. It's not someone presenting a sanitised vision of who they are and what they were thinking. You know, he's pretty seems to be pretty open and honest about his faults and his foibles as well. And, and I think he had to be for us to have done the the story that we've done because to do the podcast we needed so much information so many stories to be able to tell as part of our wider story and Ruben had to do that himself you know just from a framing perspective as a journalist I wouldn't be comfortable with making a series on somebody if we weren't hearing from that person I don't know what it was like to be a young black boy growing up in Patterson, New Jersey in the 1930s and 1940s, and I would never pretend to. So you have to have Reuben. You have to have his close friends. You have to have the lawyers from the case. You have to have eyewitnesses. You have to have the families of the victims. We had to get all of these things. And if I was amazed by one thing in this whole process, it's just how many people, you know, more than 50 years later are still alive. Um, there's an incredible number of people who are still alive and there are so many different voices in this podcast and I think that's probably one of the things I'm most proud about is, you know, there are no talking heads in this. You won't suddenly hear me in the next episode say, and here's John Smith who has been covering the story for 10 years. You know, everybody in our podcast knew Reuben Carter or worked with Reuben Carter or was directly involved in the case. It's all primary sources. And they're still clearly quite profoundly affected by what happened way back in 1966, aren't they? I don't think it's something that anybody could forget, is it? I mean, and particularly, you know, speaking for example from the point of view of the, the, the families of the victims, because they don't have closure, because in 1985 
Judge Hadley Lee Sarakin overturned Reuben Carter's conviction and there was no extra. You know, nobody else has ever been arrested since Reuben Carter was released. Nobody was has been charged. Nobody has been investigated since Reuben Carter was freed. And as our series continues, um, I'm not very good at the sort of just giving away too much, not giving away an excessive amount. So I'll do my best here. But, you know, this isn't just telling the existing story, but being the first people to tell the, the true story. You know, this is also about trying to work out who did it. And you can't preclude Reuben Carter and John Artis from that. You know, I speak to John Artis three or four times a week on WhatsApp. And I know that he knows that I'm making a podcast series which questions whether or not he's innocent. And he's okay with that, yeah. which is a remarkable thing, really, to, to be constantly in contact with someone whose entire reputation kind of rests in the palm of your hands. But we have done more investigating on other characters, some of whom have never, ever been mentioned in the public domain before. And by the time we get to the end of this series, you know, there will be at least one person who we will be saying, look, we think this guy was one of the shooters that night. Steve Crossman, the host of The Hurricane Tapes, produced by Joel Hammer for the BBC World Service. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Tracy Hall had been separated from her husband for over a year when she first met a man called Max Tavita via a dating app. He seemed witty, charming, intelligent, attractive, a successful investment advisor with a sensitive side. He'd also been struck by terrible tragedy. He told her that as a six-year-old, he'd been in a plane crash that killed his parents and left him an orphan. And then there was his job in New York. He apparently worked in the World Trade Centre, knew lots of people who died on 9-11, and had actually been walking underneath the Twin Towers when the first plane hit. I reckon we probably had between 10 and 12 dates before anything serious happened. And I remember I got to the point where I was like, am I in the friend zone here? <laughs> like, I I don't know what this is because we get along great and we uh, have a great time together and it seems like he's interested. So there was no kissing or no... Not really, no. No. No, he was really not motivated like that. The relationship did move on. It was cemented in the Christmas of 2016. They'd not spent more than a night together, and now they loaded up his four-wheel drive with gear and headed up the coast to Byron Bay. It was great. Had a ball. Had playlists of all the music we loved and... And it was Christmas Day, so we stopped halfway and had, you know, prawns on the beach. And, and then we had a week up there together. And, yeah, it was on the beach. We went surfing every day. We um, So you could surf? Yeah, he was a great surfer. And he was, you know, teaching or helping me to practice as well. So we would, we would literally just go to the beach all day. We'd take all our stuff. I'd have a couple of books. I'd go for a run or go for a walk. He'd go surfing. We'd sit and have lunch. I'd get in the water and he'd push me on some waves and we pretty much spent the whole summer holiday doing that. Not long after they returned, Tracy recorded this playful conversation between them on her phone. Max had made a declaration. She wanted to keep him to his word. Today is the 25th of January. 
January 2017 and Max has something to say. I refuse to say anything that may incriminate me at a further or period point in time. But what did you just say? I'm officially... I refuse to answer anything <laughs> that may incriminate or pertinent. Max just said he's officially off sugar. We'll see how long this lasts. Started yesterday. Starting yesterday. All right. It was also around this time that Max said he was about to invest in a big deal in the US. He said, I've got, I've got some knowledge of something that's happening in America and it's between two families and something big's going to happen and there's an opportunity to invest. And um, my sister and her husband and um, are investing in it and it wasn't until she said to me, why don't you talk to Trace about this? It might be an opportunity for Trace. And um, that he sort of started to think that he would talk to me about it and he said things like, you know, I don't normally mix business with personal relationships. And and what did you think about this at this stage, Tracy? I guess I felt that he knew what he was talking about. He certainly seemed extremely knowledgeable on the situation. I'd listened to countless conversations over the months um, between him, his boss, his um, back office team, uh, he had sent me emails that he apparently had written. Uh, he he was um, apparently responsible for writing a report that went out to all of his investors every week and it was a very, very long report with graphs and tables and um, the state of the market and shares and what people are investing in and where he thinks the opportunities are. And He began talking to Tracy about investing her superannuation and her savings. He said, you know, I'd love for you to be financially secure and financially independent. I feel like I could do so much better for you with that money than what those thieves are doing. And It all appeared legit. She signed over more than 300000 for him to invest. She trusted him. Theirs was a relationship built on mutual respect. They opened up to each other about their deepest, darkest secrets. He told her everything. Max was in therapy dealing with the trauma of his childhood and his demons from 9-11. He would tell me exactly what was spoken about, how it related to me, what the outcomes were, what he was working on personally, what his fears were. You know, like it was a very... Can you relay some of those conversations to us? I think it was about things like, you know, letting people get close to you, trust, I think a lot of issues that I guess people go and see therapists for. You know, the the challenge that he had with switching his mind off because his mind was so brilliant. Um, lots of things like that. He said sometimes he just went to his therapist and they'd just play chess and that's all they'd do. Nothing really was off limits. He was very open in that regard and, and therefore I felt like I could be really open. We did simple things. The simple things that we loved doing were things like going down the beach and hopping on his paddleboard and paddling from Bronte around to Tamarama together and just sitting out in the ocean and looking up at the houses and talking about stuff or, you know, chasing the dolphins in the water or going for a run on a Sunday or walking down the beach and taking a couple of beers from the fridge and getting some hot chips and just watching the world go by. Like we weren't getting dressed up in designer clothing and going to fancy restaurants. It's just not what we did and it's not what I wanted to do. And it seemed that it wasn't what he really wanted to do either and so that's where we found our our happy place. We felt relaxed 
doing that. And so it felt like we were quite aligned. In July 2017, they flew separately to Byron Bay. Tracy had to give a presentation on the Gold Coast. He helped her prepare. They looked at a house they thought they might buy. They walked along the beach, holding hands, talking about a future together, a future plump with promise. They caught different flights back to Sydney. Tracy said she'd never felt happier. This is when things turned weird, really weird. The best account Tracy gave of this discombobulating experience was recorded on my phone the first time I met her. Um, so we've been in Byron for the weekend. I flew back on the Sunday night. He flew back on the Monday. I spoke to him uh, on the Monday night at about 8 o'clock and he goes to bed early or went to bed early so he's like I'm off to bed. In the morning I think I woke up and I text him and uh, he didn't respond, didn't respond. His phone was still off. You know I started to get worried googling like his brother-in-law on LinkedIn trying to find a number or an email address or some way to contact. I was you know I was checking my phone throughout the night still hadn't heard from him called him went straight to voicemail looking for people that he said he went surfing with. It's very unlike him. I was really worried. So I called Bondi Police and I told them, you know, you need to go and check this out for me. I'm really worried. They asked me if he had a history of um, mental health. No, everything's fine. We've just been in Byron Bay. Everything's great. Bondi Police were off doing that. And then I'd gotten a call from a girlfriend of mine, Kath, and she had said, how are you going? And I said, oh, a bit worried about Max. I haven't heard from him in 24 hours. And she said, Trace, I've just seen something online and I think it's him. And I just immediately thought that he had died and I was like oh my god he's dead he's dead he's had a surfing accident he's dead what's happened he's dead he's dead so she sent me a link and it was the footage of him being arrested the day before with his head um blurred out then I called back uh, Bondi police and said look he hasn't died he's been arrested they said yes we know that but the name of the person that you gave us that lives at that address is not the person that lives there I said yeah it is because I've been going out with him for the last 15, 16 months, and they said it's not his name and it's not his date of birth. And I said, well, what is his name? They said, well, we can't tell you. Then I managed to get hold of his brother-in-law who I'd met, Chris, and and he'd text me back saying, hi, Tracy, Um, please call me um, urgently uh, on this number, Chris, and in brackets he wrote, Hamish's brother-in-law. And I stopped and I called him and I said, Chris, who the f*** is Hamish? He goes, what do you mean? Who is Hamish? And he goes, Hamish McLaren or Hamish Watson, whatever his last name was. And I said, well, who, who is Max? Who's Max Tavita? Like, what's going on? Who the hell is Hamish from the Australian newspaper, presented by Greg Berrup, featuring Tracy Hall, the last victim of serial conman Hamish McLaren, a.k.a. Hamish Watson and Max Tavita. Have you tried out one of those e-scooters yet? Well, seen by some as a viable, cheap and fun urban transport solution, Lime electric scooters got taken off the streets of Auckland and Dunedin last week over safety concerns about their brakes. Here's a story about e-scooters from the Washington Post's daily news podcast, Post Reports. In it, host Martine Powers speaks to technology reporter Peter Holly, who started looking into the operations of some of the big US e-scooter businesses. Outfits like Bird, Spin, Skip and Lime. 
I ride them every day. I almost have like an unnatural obsession with finding them. It's like a nervous tick almost. For him, it's way faster than waiting for the subway and way cheaper than an Uber. And then I got an email a couple months into writing them, maybe two months into writing them. Who, who sent you this email? Uh, Skip, one of the major companies based out of San Francisco. And it was one of those form emails that you usually ignore about the user agreement and the terms of service. Skip is growing and expanding. So we're updating our terms of service, our privacy policy, and our release. We've also added a class action waiver, which precludes class action. What does that tell you? I think, it, well, actually what it told me was that they were changing their terms of service. They, they had terms of service that allowed you to file a lawsuit, but then suddenly they decided to change them. And so that just made me curious, like, why would you change so that I couldn't file a lawsuit? So I read the, the small print and was like, that's unusual. Like, why would you change terms of service several months into the product being on the street? That got me curious. And then I began to wonder, well, maybe it's because of injuries. Like, maybe these companies have started worrying about getting sued by people who've gotten hurt while riding. And Peter starts looking for reports of serious scooter injuries. And they were everywhere. And the injuries were really bad. There were severe injuries, like people landing on their faces, getting knocked out, uh, people having severe long-term head injuries. And so once I had noticed that was going on, then I began calling emergency room doctors and saying, hey, are you guys seeing this as well? And they all were like, yes, uniformly they were seeing this. That was true of ER doctors in San Francisco, L.A., San Diego. Miami, Nashville, D.C., Austin. And they were telling Peter that what they were seeing from e-scooters was very different from what they'd seen when bikes and bike share programs started to get more popular. Actually, they were saying it was worse. It was They were comparing him to moped, motorcycle, and older car accidents because it turns out cars have gotten so much safer that they don't even see injuries on par with what's being produced on scooters on a regular basis. The question is, why? You could blame it on the basic physics of the scooters themselves. Small wheels aren't good at shock absorbing, you're standing up, so it's hard to brace yourself when there's a bump. But that's not the whole story. So let's say you're on a scooter, you're moving quickly, you're doing everything right, but then when you go to press the brake, it doesn't work, and you're moving towards oncoming traffic. Wait, you go to press the brake and it doesn't work? This happens really frequently. Uh, brakes don't work. Accelerators get stuck. I've had this happen to me personally, but I've also interviewed lots of people who've had this happen. Things break down constantly on these things, probably daily. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and it it's really common. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually see videos of mechanics discussing how frequently they find scooters with brakes that don't work. I just signed up to be a bird mechanic. mechanic. The handlebars would be loose. The brakes wouldn't uh, work. Scooters with problems. See how this scooter goes all the way down? That means that the brakes are loose. They don't have the full braking power. And the reason is because the brakes get loosened because people of different weights are using them to go downhill or something and the brakes kind of get loosened and they probably need upkeep every day or so. Who, who is doing this maintenance work and how is that being tracked by the companies? Um, it depends on the company. Most companies rely on an unskilled workforce that they do some training on. Uh, these are like gig economy employees. Oftentimes they're young people or people who don't have jobs otherwise, but they're not highly trained. And I think that's safe to say across the industry. So for Bird, for example, you can go on Craigslist and see ads for them looking for mechanics and they don't require experience and they'll train you using YouTube videos. These are videos that are shared by the company. All right, today we're going to demonstrate replacing the brake caliper assembly. Going to start by so you have some guy in his apartment who's never done any kind of mechanic work at all in the past watching YouTube videos, and then he's going to be doing maintenance on your scooter that you're going to be riding to work the next day. So they're literally like, 
it doesn't really matter if you're a professional mechanic or not. Just, like, take our scooters, use this YouTube video, fix them to the best of your ability. We'll give you some money and put it back on the road, and we're not going to test them to make sure that they're working properly. Well, the, the mechanics are supposed to test them to an extent before they put them back on the road, but there's not but a the lot of... the company account. itself isn't the testing The company them. itself is not testing them. There's not a rigorous testing process. And the same is true in uh, across the industry for, for Lyme. I think Skip's maintenance program is more robust, but it's safe to say that when you get on a scooter, if it's a bird or a Lyme, you don't really know what you're getting. So you talk to these companies and say, like, Clearly, there's an issue here. If there are all these documented malfunctions of the e-scooters, what did they have to say? They say that maintenance and safety is, is their top priority, which is strange because it doesn't seem like it is. Peter wrote a story about this, about the experiences of injured riders and the concerns from ER doctors and the lack of safeguards to ensure that random freelancers who are doing repairs are actually doing them right. But Peter also knew that he hadn't gotten to the heart of the story. He needed to talk to people on the inside, people who actually worked for these companies. The question was, how was he going to find them? And then he had this idea. I had been doing this thing where at night I would grab the scooters off the street and I would take them to my apartment and I'd wait until 9 p.m. had passed and I'd put it out on the street and after a few minutes you'd hear the, the scooter would start beeping because somebody was looking for it, one of the chargers, or they're, they're known as juicers. So, and then a juicer would show up, and then Wait, I would. So, so you'd be like sitting in like the front room of your apartment, just like waiting for these waiting. people to show up to your house. Yeah, it was like it was like when people want to study sharks, they throw chum into the water. So I was just sort of chumming with scooters, and then people would show up, chargers, and I'd start conversations with them. And so I knew from that, from those conversations, that these things are really dangerous. Somebody told me pretty early on, like, yeah, we have a maintenance department, but it's mostly a bunch of guys sitting around a table smoking pot. But I don't know if that's the best way to be uh, in charge of people's safety. For the record, at the time, a Lime spokesperson told Peter that's not something that happens at this company. So I knew that things were going wrong with the scooters. And then when I was doing the stories, I was waiting for somebody within one of these warehouses to reach out to me to talk. And that's exactly what happened. In October, Peter opens up his email and gets this message. Mr. Holly, I recently read your article on September 6th regarding scooter usage and thought you really hit on something I haven't seen in many stories I've read this summer about scooter danger. I work as a mechanic for Lime in California. One of the company's scooters started on fire in a warehouse in late August, and had there not been someone there, the whole building probably would have burned down. This person was saying that many of the lithium-ion batteries in Lime scooters were not properly installed, and they were prone to suddenly catching on fire. We've been told by management not to say anything to other employees, the landlord, customers, and most importantly, to the juicers. And this person had a whole lot of other information, too, about scooter defects and concerns from Lime's own staff mechanics, and the fact that riders weren't being informed of any of these problems. We repair these things daily, and they're made of the cheapest parts with no regard to longevity or safety. Most important, this person had evidence. Screenshots from Lime's app. Internal communications photos. I have pictures of the burned scooter. There are other employees who may be willing to talk. It was exactly what Peter had been looking for. These are a fire and explosion hazard. Let me know if this story is one you'd like to pursue or if I should inquire elsewhere. Thank you for your time. It took a while for Peter to corroborate everything. He actually flew out to California to meet this guy in person, to check out his company pay stubs and make sure that he was legit. 
And he used a report from a small fire department near a lime warehouse to prove that the scooter fires were real. In the end, Peter was able to publish a story with several big takeaways. Not only were some of Lime scooters prone to fire, but the company was aware of it. They were quietly conducting a massive recall, and they weren't telling customers about it until Peter started asking. For what it's worth, Lime blamed the battery defect on the scooter's manufacturer and not on their own maintenance practices. They also said that they removed the scooters out of an abundance of caution. But, quote, at no time were riders or members of the public put at risk. Martine Powers speaking to Peter Holly for Post Reports from The Washington Post. And as well as that, we've been listening to David Tennant does a podcast, The Hurricane Tapes and Who the Hell is Hamish? Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature, and if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.